Hello and welcome to Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling. My name is Pat Poling. I am the founder and CEO of Mara Poling, and I'll be with you for the next 25 minutes or so as we discuss multifamily real estate investing. Today, we're doing something that we periodically take time to do, and that is answering some questions that have come in from listeners. Now, these questions all came via either email or individuals setting up some time and having a chat, and whoever asked the question has in fact received their answer already. We wanted to take some time though and pull some information together to share with all of you. Our expectation is many of you may have these same questions in mind and simply haven't taken the time to reach out and ask. If you would like to do so, feel free to shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com. M-A-R-A-P-O-L-I-N-G.com. You can also swing by the website, take a look at the Learning Center. Lots of great material there. You may find the answer you are looking for. And you can also on the website find a link to schedule time on my calendar and we could have a chat. Happy to do that with you. So we're gonna uh, go ahead and get started here. So the first question, this is actually the most recent question that has come to us, is uh, when does new Class A construction impact Class B rents? And this is related to uh, episode 26 by the numbers that we, uh, that we just released last week. So it's a great question. You may recall that when we discussed the supply and demand situation in the Class B space, we discussed the fact that there's effectively no new supply that comes into that space. <clears throat> Excuse me. But there is a question about what about overbuilding in Class A, since that's where the bulk, if not 100% of the development in many markets is going on, couldn't the Class A space overbuild and that have an impact on Class Bs? Well, the obvious answer is yes, of course that could happen. There's a couple reasons how why we haven't seen it happen yet and how we actually protect ourselves, more polling in our portfolios uh, from that eventuality. So one is uh, nobody builds class A or any property for cash. Everybody has some kind of debt involved when they do that. And lenders, when they're underwriting these assets are looking for those exact issues, uh, an oversupply situation that would put their money at risk. So while we can't always count on lenders to be the breaks in this scenario, the restraint, uh, there's absolutely gonna be some restraint that comes from the lending side of the process. The biggest factor is uh, back to just the numbers that we discussed last week. There are so many class B units in the country. If you look again, historically at when we had all that big development that was going on, 400,000, 500,000, 600,000, 700,000. It was back in the 80s, which is when the bulk of this Class B inventory was constructed. You look at the new Class A's that are coming on right now, and it's 300,000 or so. So a relatively modest number compared to the size of the Class B's. Another piece of the puzzle is the work that we do in our underwriting and in particular our competitive analysis. So we don't just comp against other class B's in the submarket. We want to know about the class A's and what that space looks like. How many are there? Is there any new development that's going on? What are the average class A rents? And what's the low class A? Where's, where's class A really begin? 
And we wanna see a healthy gap between our class B properties and the class A properties. Typically, we'll see around a 50% rent differential. So for example, if our properties are in the 800 to $1,000 a month range, we'll typically see or look for class A's to be around maybe 1,500 a month uh, and up, something in that, uh, in that neighborhood. Does that mean there won't be an issue? Of course not, right? All we can ever do is position ourselves to manage risk. We can never completely eliminate it. So uh, great question, and I hope that was helpful to, uh, to many of you, hopefully all of you. <clears throat> Next question, uh, what have you learned from your most recent acquisitions? This was a question we got back after episode 11, where do deals come from? And every time we acquire a property or sell a property or complete a major activity at a property, for example, like a value add cycle, we do a debrief with the team. And we're not only looking for the things that went well, that's always great to see, and we can pat uh, some folks on the back for doing a good job, but you don't learn a lot from that. We learn a great deal by looking at what didn't go the way we planned. And when I say the way we planned, that doesn't necessarily mean that it went poorly, right? If something happened different than what we underwrote, we'd like to understand why that was the case so that we can improve our modeling. Most recently, the learnings have been coming in terms of the uh, level of preparedness uh, at close to effectively execute a transition um, and the speed with which we may or may not want to move in terms of executing value-add strategies. And uh, those are items that we absolutely know, that we work on all the time, and we continue to get feedback that there's ways we can improve uh, on those. The day that we have a debrief for any of those items and don't walk away with things we can do better uh, is the day somebody's throwing dirt on us because you're going to continually learn throughout this process uh, until the day you simply don't do it anymore. <clears throat> All right, next question. I'm looking for cash income to support retirement. Will multifamily do this for me? Uh, and this came from a nice uh, couple who were planning for retirement uh, in the next uh, year or two. And they sent us this question after we did our two-part uh, episode, uh, 22 and 23, on optimizing cash income. So uh, I would have to answer yes. You can certainly do that. Uh, how much cash income? That's obviously the question, right? So if you're looking for 20% a year, I think you'll be hard pressed to find that in the multifamily space. If you're looking for 5% a year, I think that's extremely doable. If you're looking for an 8% cash and you're looking for that in the early phase of an investment, you're probably not gonna be looking at a value add property that was purchased in a competitive market. Uh, the, the cap rates and the value add time cycle probably push that cash out a few years. Uh, typically our properties will cash flow 8% or better over the course of five years, uh, meaning that around year three is when they'll cross that 8% threshold uh, and then average 8% uh, uh, over the full five years. So if you're looking for cash income from retirement, 
Our suggestion would be this, whether you're investing with a firm like Mara Poling or someone else, or you're doing this work on your own, begin this investment cycle five years before you're thinking about uh, pulling the trigger and retiring. Once you can get one cycle of ownership, right? So an acquisition, uh, an improvement, and a sale, and then a, a reinvestment of those proceeds, then you'll have a fairly good uh, cash flow that will, uh, that will be in place. If you're looking to do that right out of the gate, as opposed to equity investing in multifamilies, you might look to do some debt investing. There's debt funds that you can find out there. You're not going to get the tax benefits you get with an equity position in multifamily, and you won't see any appreciation. Uh, but you'll you'll see uh, a cash flow number right away. And that may be something that makes sense in terms of a diversified portfolio for you. So again, thanks for that question. Number four, why not refinance or take out a supplemental loan, meaning a second loan, instead of selling and doing a 1031 at year five? And this question came after episode 19, the multi-generational wealth episode that we had. It's a really good question. And the folks that asked it, I actually did a web session with, and we, we did some math and we went through and we demonstrated that the baseline position of buying a property and holding it, for example, over 10 years, produced a nice return, completely acceptable, something no one would be dissatisfied with, we think. And it left a lot of opportunity on the table. Buying a property, holding it for 10 years, and then either refinancing or taking out a supplemental loan increased the return significantly. It did not change necessarily the tax structure of the asset because it was still the same asset held over that time frame. The best modeling was purchasing an asset, running through the improvement cycle, selling at year five, essentially when that cost segregation depreciation capability has been uh, taken full advantage of, and then 1031ing into a new asset and putting that lazy equity to work uh, and growing it again. You had uh, returns that were essentially on par with the refinance of the supplemental. So not a big difference from that standpoint, but you had big tax savings because of the depreciation uh, structure. Our strategy at Mara Polling is to do the latter whenever we can, right? So hold an asset for a full cycle, somewhere around year five, we'd look to sell, do a uh, exchange into a new property and begin the process all over again and get that lazy equity working. And we also do have assets that we hold for longer periods of time in which we use supplemental loans to improve returns. We don't get a chance to take as much of the tax advantage as we would like, uh, but every property is a little different and that's part of the benefit of investing in a fund uh, like we operate is that you get a little bit of diversification in terms of the strategies. While they're all more or less down the same road, uh, some are to the left and some are to the right. And when you add them all together, you get some diversification that hopefully uh, everybody benefits from. So again, thank you to those folks. And uh, I hope they enjoyed the, uh, the session we did together. Uh, question number five, we recommend, uh, read it as though I was writing. Uh, you recommend a team of advisors, meaning 
me. Um, and we do, we absolutely recommend having a team of advisors, uh, a CPA, a tax advisor, an attorney, an estate attorney, um, a risk management person, an insurance fo uh, person, uh, you know, at a minimum having those kinds of folks, uh, I'd like to think everybody has a banker or someone they can go to uh, at a regional uh, bank or a credit union that they could work with. Um, those are good people to have in your life when you're managing your finances long term. So the question was, how do I find them? Uh, and this came uh, in uh, early this, earlier this year, uh, following episode nine, uh, team of advisors, uh, the first one we did, and that was when our, uh, our guest was uh, Robert Wolf from uh, Terra Firma Consultants. And um, I get this question a lot, and I have two answers. The first is, unfortunately, we simply aren't in a position to make recommendations. One, it wouldn't be appropriate for us to do that, and two, you all, you wonderful folks are from all over the country, and I simply don't know who is a really good CPA in uh, Indianapolis or in Cleveland or in Miami or uh, San Francisco. I know a lot of them in San Francisco as an example, which happens to be a market I'm familiar with, but I don't know which one's really going to be a good fit for you. So uh, we're not able to make recommendations. What I can tell you is how I have found those individuals in my personal life. And it's been through my network, going to individuals that uh, I have high regard for. These might be professional relationships or personal relationships, asking them for recommendations, asking the people I'm referred to for recommendations, right? So for example, I was looking for an estate attorney and this is 20 some odd years ago, I went to an individual that, uh, uh, was a lawyer, uh, not in that field, uh, that I thought was a very bright and capable person. And I asked him, I said, who, who should I talk to? And he says, oh, these are the folks. And I went and we met them uh, and we've had a great relationship for, as I said, well over 20 years. Uh, the same with uh, CPAs and insurance folks and so on. So your network really will be the best source of those. And if you don't have a team, um, give some thought to how you might start building it. And this is something you can and likely should be doing regardless of the size of your balance sheet. Uh, so whether you're a million dollar plus accredited investor or whether you're just starting out and you've got $50,000 squirreled away in a 401k, getting some people that can help you as you go through your journey of life and as you learn, and that's really what it's all about, is helping these folks help you learn, um, you, those are going to be good resources. And then when you do get to a place, if you're not there yet, where you have an event of some substance, you're going to have some really solid relationships and you'll be able to count on these folks to give you good advice. Uh, so hopefully that helps. Uh, I'm always happy to chat again with folks about that. Um, and uh, and I'll hear your stories too. If you have uh, taken that advice or done something else on your own to uh, find advisors, we'd love to hear what you've done and uh, be happy to share that with the rest of the uh, audience because this is probably one of the most common questions uh, we'll get. All right, uh, question number six that we're going to deal with tonight. Uh, you don't mention your investments performance. How are they doing? And this came uh, a couple months back 
after Painting the Corners, episode 16, where we talked about our investment thesis and how we have assets in our portfolio that fit our model, but even inside the model, there's room some, for some diversification. So one of the things that we really work hard on, and I in particular uh, as the voice uh, for our team, is uh, we really don't want these sessions to be sales pitches, right? This is not about uh, selling uh, our investment products as we say often. If you're interested in learning about that, we would love to talk to you, obviously. That's, that's one of the reasons we, uh, we do have relationships with folks is to, uh, is to help them in that way. The intent of these podcasts is educational. And so we will, on occasion, share a case study or an example or maybe some real world performance about one of the assets uh, in our portfolio or about our portfolio in general as a way of helping everybody learn. And I also appreciate the question, right? So every week you get to hear me or me and some of our guests chat about multifamily real estate uh, you might be asking yourself, wow, I wonder how these guys actually do uh, in terms of uh, their performance. So one, I would love to talk to you about that. And in particular, I'd love to invite you to one of our performance webinars. Uh, periodically, we uh, sit down with a group of folks online and talk about how the assets are performing. Um, obviously, we do that with our clients very regularly, but with individuals that don't work with us yet, we invite them periodically to those sessions. If you'd like to come to one of those sessions, again, they're online, shoot me an email, pat at marapolling.com, and, and I'll make sure an invite to the, uh, to the next session. We go into a little more detail in those sessions. Uh, in general, uh, our assets perform basically the way we would like them to. You know, we underwrite pretty conservatively. Uh, we have lots of favorable variances. The favorable variances tend to be clustered right now in things like operating expenses. So we have uh, performance where our operating expenses are less than what we had budgeted and had performed. And those are in a variety of categories. Everything from uh, taxes and salaries and wages to uh, monthly services, uh, management expenses, and, and so on. Um, uh, we also have favorable variances on the uh, revenue side, uh, other income, and uh, rents. Generally speaking, our rents uh, on our assets are higher than what we have underwritten. Uh, that's consistent with what we would like to have happen. Uh, we underwrite, as, as we've talked before, modest rent increases. Say there's $100 in available rent increase uh, relative to the comps, we might underwrite 60 or $70 uh, and then give the team the guidance to let's go get the 100. And in many instances, we get 80 or 90 or 100 or even 110. And obviously, we're able to beat the underwrite from that standpoint. Um, we also occasionally have unfavorable variances, and those show up in a lot of different places. Again, sometimes on expense lines, uh, insurance is one. Um, about a year ago, we had a fairly significant uh, insurance increase on one of the assets. We, um, we had to bite the bullet for a short period of time, but then we were able to, uh, through a new carrier, uh, negotiate some better terms and, uh, and modify that. So, uh, so that was positive. And um, 
vacancy. You have to stay on top of vacancy. We've talked about that a lot. Uh, so whether you're managing your own properties or whether you're uh, investing with a firm like us, you want to make sure that you understand how those folks are managing uh, vacancy. And remember, vacancy is actual physical vacancy, it's bad debt, and it's concessions, uh, discounts given to incent people to move in. Um, so when you net that all together, we're ahead of plan uh, for our assets and for our portfolio. We're very pleased about that. We've had some very favorable uh, sales activity that, um, that we'll be sharing more information about. Again, if you're interested, you can reach out and we'll be happy to talk about that with the, uh, with the sale of a first generation asset and the move into a second generation asset. So uh, maybe a little more of an answer than you were looking for. Um, and hopefully the rest of you found some value in that as well. Uh, but there you go. That is the answer to question number six. Question number seven. I don't think I am an accredited investor. How can I invest in multifamily? And this question came to us all the way back in the very early part of January. Our first episode this year was how to start at multifamily real estate. And we talked about a lot of different ways that you can invest. And we had a number of questions about well, what is this accreditation thing and how do I become accredited? So uh, accreditation is not a MARA polling term, right? That is not a term we use to say that you're qualified to work with us or you're not qualified. It is a regulatory term uh, defined by the Securities and Exchange Commission. We are required as a 506C entity, that's the, our investment fund is structured that uh, to work with individuals that are accredited as defined by the SEC. And there's a lot of different ways you can become accredited. If you go online, uh, Google's a wonderful thing, right? So if you go on and Google accredited investor, you'll see some material there. It'll describe lots of different ways individuals and entities can become accredited. The primary way most individuals become accredited is by income or by net worth. Income is $200,000 a year for an individual, $300,000 for a couple, and net worth is a million dollars, and that excludes the equity in uh, that individual's primary residence. So those are the two ways you can become accredited. So if you had a question about just what accreditation is, um, why does it exist? Well, I can give you two answers. One, it exists because that's the law and we follow the law. So that's, that's, why, we, that's why we have this accreditation process. Um, the logic behind it is something to the effect of wanting to ensure that the individuals that are investing in these kinds of investments have a track record and experience that helps them understand these investments. And I think that makes a lot of sense. We certainly don't want to have individuals investing in assets that, uh, that they're not comfortable with or they don't understand. Um, and I am sure that in addition to all of the wonderful individuals that are accredited and are great investors, there are some accredited folks that maybe these aren't good fits for. And I'm sure there's lots of folks out there that are not accredited according to the standard that actually would do just fine investing. Uh, in these kinds of assets. But we play by the rules. Uh, and so if you would like to know if you're accredited, if you think, gee, I think I'm kind of close, um, we do 
provide accreditations uh, for individuals. We don't do the work ourselves. We use an independent third party. So if you would like to see, you think, gee, I think I'm kind of close and maybe I would like to do some of this investing, shoot me an email, I'll be happy to talk to you about it. Uh, and we can set up an opportunity for you to work with the third party firm that we use and, uh, and they can take you through the process and we'll help you understand if you are accredited or not. And if you are, they'll give you a nice little letter that you can then use when you invest with Mara Polling or with, a, again, with a firm uh, like us. So uh, hope, again, hope that was valuable to you all. One last question. And the question is, this question number eight, if you didn't invest in multifamily real estate, what type of real estate would you invest in? And this question is from episode 17, why, 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 why? And it's really a great question and it needs more depth than what we're gonna be able to provide this evening. So, and by the way, you notice I keep saying this evening, we're on the road, Bill and I, and we're out looking at uh, current acquisitions and uh, I happen to be holed up in a hotel room in, uh, in market and uh, taking the opportunity to get this session recorded for you all this week. So, um, so we don't have time this evening to answer this question and it's a really good question. So next week's episode is going to be if you didn't invest in multifamily real estate, what type of real estate would you invest in? So make sure you subscribe, join us next week so you can hear the answer to, uh, to that question. Now, maybe in going through all this uh, this evening, we answered your questions because you had some of these. It's more likely that there's a question you have that we didn't talk about. So send me an email. Email me those questions. We like doing this kind of a session periodically. And as I said at the top of the session, if you send me a question, I'll make sure you can answer I'll either, either via email or we'll set up a, a time to chat about it. But then we'll add your question to a list like this so that everyone can benefit, it for, uh, benefit from it uh, down the road a little ways. So that's pat at marapolling.com, M-A-R-A, P-O-L-I-N-G.com. Please make sure you subscribe and look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of Multifamily Real Estate Investing presented by Mara Poling.